0: I guess, ultimately, that's why I joined. I wanted to go overseas. I wanted to be a part of what was this
1: part in history. Welcome to the podcast, where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is
2: my family. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there to do country. I did feel a lot of regret. My
1: friends were still getting killed.
2: It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite do often. Do I lead under fire? And no, that was a
1: heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what, what you can do for yourself or what can you do for your country. The you volunteer for service was in effect you to put your life on the land. Joel Sardy is a veteran of the Australian Army. He served for five years and deployed to Afghanistan as a rifleman at 7 RAR. Shortly after coming home, Joel had an accident, leaving him as a C-5 quadriplegic. Joel spoke to Thomas Kay about his time in the Army and adjusting to new life after the accident.
2: I'm Thomas Kay, speaking today with Joel Sardi. Joel, welcome to Life on the Line.
0: Thanks, Tom. Good evening. How are you?
2: So we'll start from the very beginning. Um, What can you tell us about your upbringing?
0: Grew up in Melbourne, a family of four. I had a younger brother, nothing too extreme. I was playing basketball and football as a kid. I had a keen interest in sport and I guess the the mateship that I bought and the discipline and all the benefits that came from exercise. I started playing football a bit more seriously and and realised I was okay at it. I was never that good, but it was definitely a contrast between my passion and ability at sport versus my commitment and ability at school <laughs> mum and dad could probably attest to that sport was definitely a passion of mine school wasn't the greatest or the greatest strength of mine but it was later on through school that I started to see a bit of an attraction to military or even the army specifically there was a lot of stuff in the media about global conflict or even just general movies we'd watch about war or military and I just had a real interest for it and then realised that my subjects at school were wavering towards history and I was actually excelling in history and anything military related.
2: You have any military in the family, any previous serving members or anything like that? No immediate members who'd served. What was it that kind of started it all off? Was it this sort of attraction through history with everything going on?
0: I was never the scholar, you know, I was never an academic and reading a book was not something I did in my spare time. but. I was really drawn to technological advancements in military and how it changed tactics or or battles or even how medicine was basically developed or evolved through conflict. And that was what really interested me. And then I guess learning about weapons, learning about some of the soldiers and and hearing their individual stories and how it really shaped, I guess, our country as well. I was just naturally drawn to that. Like I was saying, with my attraction to sport, the demand on, on the body in being physical and a bit of discipline, It sort of went hand in hand with what the Army is and especially the infantry. And I was soon to learn that. But at the time, I didn't realise that. But I guess that's why I had an attraction to military.
2: Did your family know about this attraction to the military before you (laughs) signed up? No, they
0: definitely didn't. I funny story about that, I um, I was playing football and, and broke my back at training one night. And over the next seven months, after going through rehab I had to basically learn how to sit up and learn to walk safely again. During that rehab process, I spoke to a mate who had joined the Army a year out of school. I was talking to him and he he said, quote, unquote, it's like a football club on steroids. And, you know, that was all I needed to hear when I'd been in rehab for so many months, really not enjoying too much, not being able to go back to football, and the Army just looked perfect at the time. So I applied for the infantry and realised there was no spots But the DFR staff said, I'll have a look at the gap year program. So I applied, got through the final interviews, and my medical failed because of my back injury. So I had to wait another 12 months until I reapplied. During that time, I broke it to my family that, yeah, I was applying for the Army and, more importantly, broke it to the girl I was dating at the time, Elisa, that I'd applied for the Army.
2: So this was all after you'd finished school?
0: Yeah, yeah, I was 19. I'd spent a bit of time at uni studying marketing and I think I did that just because it's what everyone else did, you know, like the transition from school through to uni. The writing was on the wall. I was not turning up to lectures and I wasn't really doing the work and I wasn't driven or I'd go out on Tuesday night to a, a uni night, turn up still inebriated from the night before.
2: What can you tell us about the gap year program that it was for you? So walk us through sort of the starting when you first signed up to when you initially got there.
0: There was a select number of jobs that were available for the gap year program because obviously, you know, you can't do a gap year program and fly a plane or be a medic. There was selected jobs and the infantry was one of them. Again, look, I, I really had no interest in any other jobs in the Army other than the infantry. So it was a no-brainer. I applied for that. You read on the on the website what you're, what you're up for in the next six months in regards to training and locality and what you're going to learn. And it's one thing to read it and think that that's what you're going to do, but to actually live it and then go through and do it is a completely different experience. That experience of, of the first few weeks at Kapuka, I mean, everyone that has joined can attest to, it's it's like nothing else. And it's not as if their far told you exactly what it was going to be like.
2: When you got there and you're enjoying Kapuka so much compared to what most people were, you loved it so much that it only took four weeks. Is that right?
0: Oh, look, it definitely took a lot more than that. I was a good Italian boy growing up and I was very close to my mum and dad and mum was still making my lunch up until the week before I joined the army when I went to uni. (laughs) To go to Kapuka and get the Kapuka experience, bit of a shock to the system and a massive culture shock. It took a while to actually adjust to it, I guess, like everybody else. It was halfway through Singo, I realised that I really, really like this. So I signed on for regs, which is the four-year commitment. But that's what we were sort of advised when we applied for the gap year, that There's no availabilities in full-time infantry. Just go the gap year and then that'll be your transition into full-time when you're
2: ready. Did you know anyone starting off with you?
0: No. When I got on the bus and sat next to a guy who I'd never met before and spoke to him and thought that uh, he looked as as worried and scared and confused as I did. (laughs) And I was right. After the next few months, I realized he was as worried and scared and as lost as I was.
2: What was the difference like between going from Kapuka to then Singleton?
0: Leaving Kapuka and going to Singo, as everybody that has done that transition, you realise you get a bit more freedom, you get paid a bit more, you you get your phones back after work or you get your weekends. And that's when we really bonded, you know, like going out with our section or Appletoon, going down to Maitland or uh, Newy on the weekend and getting on the piss, mucking up, having fun and really forming relationships. And then, going to work on the Monday or doing a course or going out bush, whatever it was for SINGO for your training, the relationships were really bonded and formed there, a lot more so than Kapuka because you're separated from other trades. You're you're, you're in with the guys that are in the infantry. And I reckon that was just behind deployment, one of the best experiences I've had during the Army, that SINGO experience.
2: Can you talk us through the training that you went through in this whole introduction to it?
0: Yeah, it was really special. And there's there's memories that are just imprinted in my brain, getting absolutely flogged after defensive ops and sitting in a pit that we dug down a hill from the shitters. And when it rained overnight, the shitters would overflow. And then we had shit flowing into our pits. And I remember at the time, it was a really bad experience. But then the next day, you think back and you laugh about it. And now, when I catch up with my mates in a couple of weeks for Anzac Day, I'm sure we're going to reflect on that experience and laugh about it. I guess there's nothing that can really prepare you for the the mental test, I guess, if you will, of, of Singleton. The, you know, the physical test, get fit, do the training. It's, it's not that hard. There's no big secret. But the mental piece was something that I really started to learn. The shit of the times, the better the relationship. No pun intended there.
2: Mental ordeal to try and get through that one Having the logs come down the, row, down the hill. Yeah. <laughs> a
0: few chocolate sausages in the trench didn't make it nice.
2: Make it a uh, memorable experience for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, it definitely was, yeah.
2: Walk us through the rest of the gap year program. So, effectively, was it done as soon as you signed the dotted line, the transition from going from singleton to A res?
0: We were in singleton with guys who were also full time. So, there was no, you couldn't distinguish unless we actually disclosed that we were actually a a gap year or we were regulars. It was the same process in, in so much as do kapuka, march out, go to singleton, pass all your assessments, march out, get sent to your unit. We got sent from Singleton after the 12, 13-week period it was to various units. Some stayed at as uh, enemy party, some went up to CTC, and some waited in holding to get sent to their, their units if they were full-timers. Because I was waiting on an opening at 7 RAR in Adelaide, I was sent to CTC in Townsville and spent a few months there, living in the transit lines, no doors, no air conditioning up in Townsville. I reckon that was some of the best times because that's where we got to go out, hang out with our mates, work out every morning, do army stuff for a few months, and then we got sent to our units.
2: Can you elaborate on what CTC is?
0: When there's major exercises that were around the country, a lot of guys that were either broken or for personal reasons weren't at units, they would be at CTC and they would be used as enemy party for any exercises around the country. Now, that's what was happening when I was there. I can't speak to what's going on now. It's been over 10 years since i was there but our responsibility there was to play enemy party for pre-deployment training
2: is it combat training center
0: that's it yeah or cell combat training cell or center
2: what happened after you finished up at CTC? that's when i
0: got sent down to seminar hour that's where the proper experience of being in a unit really started where i marched in on the friday and the guy that marched me in said you're on guard tomorrow my first experience on a Saturday was being on guard at 7 RAR and, and not knowing what the fuck was happening, you know, like what's guard? There was no guard at CTC and stand on the box and salute people or sign people in or patrol around a compound, within a compound, within a compound in case someone attacks and jumps over 15 fences and tries to get into an army that's heavily locked up. These are questions I probably wasn't asking at the time, but they were in my head. And then that was just before Christmas. So we went on Christmas stand down and, and then came back to a pretty busy year of courses because that's the 7 RAR was about to, uh, they're in their readying phase before they deployed to ATF1 and ATF2. So a lot of guys was getting sent away for quals courses for Bushmaster, Crew Commander, whatever it may be. I was sent on a couple of those as well.
2: While you're growing up, you grew up with 9-11 and the conflict in the Middle East kicking off. Was any of this playing in the back of your mind?
0: yeah. I say now because I'm comfortable where my career went and how I am now. I guess ultimately that's why I joined. I wanted to go overseas. I wanted to be a part of what was this part in history, whether it be Iraq or Afghanistan. That naive 15, 16, 17-year-old boy saw it on the news or the TV and thought, yeah, I want that. And I guess that didn't really change. That's why I joined. And and when we found out we were getting deployed, we were pretty pumped about it. But yeah, seeing it on the news definitely had a major impact on my decision-making to actually join.
2: How did you find out that you were going to be
0: deployed? Oof. You know, there's always the, the digger net that you hear whispers of something happening months before because ATF1 had already been deployed and 7RAR were the, um, I think they were sent in mid, mid-2012, there was whispers going on that there'd be an ATF2 and 7RAR would be the ones going over there to support 2CAV. Rumours turned into fact, and in fact, turned into us getting sent around the country to do courses or keyword training or even to Darwin to do pre-deployment training. And I was one of them. We all moved into different platoons and told, you know, this is what the next three, four months looks like. Get ready to not see home or your family too much because you're going to be training and, and everything. And I guess when we got issued all our kit, that was a pretty big moment. That was a, a realisation that, yep, now this is getting ready to go overseas. And that was that. So we moved up to Darwin on the – I think it was about the 26th of January in 2013. And it was there where we, we stayed there for the next four months. So we deployed on the 21st of May, 2013.
2: What sort of stuff did you cover in your pre-deployment training?
0: Yeah, there was a lot of medical-based training. There was a lot of care of the battle, casualty, tourniquet, nothing above what the standard first aiders would be able to do. But then given the threat of IEDs at the time in Afghanistan, there was a lot of training for... IED counter drills or what would happen if a vehicle hits IED so on and so forth there was also cultural awareness training because that's when there was a lot of green on blue attacks so a major piece of our understanding of remaining safe or actually being effective whilst working with Afghanis was understanding their culture I still don't understand much of it after we did all the training and, and witnessed what we witnessed overseas but Good going to tick the box, I guess. Some of it was helpful. Some of it was an absolute waste of time. And then also learning what our job was exactly. Whilst we were over there, the guardian angel role had come into play. And, and that's what saw us escorting or looking after whoever we were looking after our direct, whether it be an American or an Australian, taking them into meetings or into towns or into, into communities and making sure that the meeting went down safely. And if anything did happen, then we could pull them out of there safely, get them in the bushes or get him whatever we need to do to expel. As anyone that has deployed could probably attest to this, a lot of the training that we did, we went over and over and over, and fortunately, the majority of that training never actually had to get put into play. It was obviously very effective because I can still remember it now, nearly 10 years on this year.
2: When you found out that you're going, you do all this training, and you had this idea of what it's going to be like when you arrive, when you actually arrived, was it what you expected?
0: No. I mean, how can you prepare for something like that? You see it on TV or... You hear about it and you hear guys from the unit that had deployed before and that's their recount of their perspective, of their reality. So how am I supposed to put myself in their shoes? I can imagine it, but everything I imagined was completely contradictory to what I actually experienced when we landed, basically leaving Dubai and flying into Afghanistan, the equivalent of flying Melbourne to Sydney the distance away, coming into land and you got your kit ready to go and you land on the tarmac or you land on the on the airfield depending where we were. And you get off and there's, there's TK you know, the stuff you've heard about for years and and there's Camp Russell and, again, you know, stuff you've heard about for years. And at that time I had no exposure to the Special Forces community. So to be on deployment in a war zone, seeing the Special Forces dudes potentially going out and doing their thing, which as infantry soldiers you always look up to them, it was a massive culture shock. And for someone who was only 21 years old, yeah, it was, it was a lot to take in and I probably didn't take in what i needed to at the time that culture shock was huge
2: walks through your first while once you arrived
0: i remember being pretty tired we had a lot of the preparation for flying into afghan so for the next for the first four days in dubai in amab you go through a lot of the um current state of affairs in afghan all the training education the training further care of the battle casualty training basically so you're ready we fly in and I think we had a massive brief. The whole task group was in, in the hangar down the bottom near the gym. The CEO was talking to us, and I remember at the time his favourite word was austerity. There were austere conditions or so he said that we'd be living in for the next X amount of months. And the theme, there's always a theme of, of a deployment apparently, and our theme was PT shirts. He was harping on about the certain shirts we could wear and certain shirts we couldn't wear. And I remember that distinctly because that's what he was talking about the first day we got into country and we are all – laughing about it back in our rooms that we prepared for this and we've learned about PT shares, what we can and can't wear.
2: In this process of going overseas and going on your deployment, how did your family and friends, everyone back home take it?
0: Now, I can't really speak to how they took it personally or individually. They were fine with it so much as when I told them or when I said goodbye to them. And I say this with absolute respect to people that had passed away or people that had lost their lives in Afghanistan that We were trained to a really high standard. We were going to an area we didn't know too much about, you could say, but we'd been trained. We knew what we were doing. And that's the justification I would give to, say, if mum was a bit concerned or dad or my brother. I guess the majority of people would make their own assumptions based on what they'd seen on the news or heard on the news about where we were going. And I never really asked them about what they thought of it because it didn't bother me.
2: What can you tell us of the different bases, the different camps and what this life looked like from meeting the locals to engaging with multi-forces or that sort of things?
0: I was only 21 at the time. I hadn't traveled too much around the world. So I was meeting foreigners, foreign military members, meeting the local Afghanis. And there was a few things, you know, when we'd go for a drive through Kandahar or through through TK and or the city just outside of TK, I'll make sure I, I, I make that specific where kids were doing like bomb signals to us or pretending to shoot at us and there were kids not too much older than my own children here. I didn't understand that, I couldn't comprehend that and then you go back to the room and we talk about it and you realise that these kids have grown up in war and that's all they really knew or they knew conflict and that's it and who knows what their parents are telling them back at home. It was a shock and a learning experience for a 21-year-old kid to be there and Taking it all in. Like I said, it was only two or three years ago. My mum was still making my lunch for me. <laughs> and there we are. I was at the back of a bushmaster controlling traffic, pointing a mag 58 at people to make sure they didn't come closer. Comparing that, there's no comparison.
2: Throughout the whole deployment, were you in the Guardian Angel role?
0: No. So the first half of our deployment, we were in Tarrank and we were the QRF, quick reaction force. So we would you know, react to anything that would happen outside the wire if there was there was a lot of stuff that happened and we you know we reacted got in the bushmasters, and ready to go but we were never sent outside and that was really really frustrating and after that three or four months in tk we were sent to kandahar which is where we took a more active role thank god because we were actually allowed to do our jobs in some context and we were guardian angels and some of our jobs would see us out and about all day or for a couple of days Some of us would see, particularly me, the guy I was with me after would go into Camp Hero for maybe two hours a day, speak to the local Afghanis, see what's going on and come back. That was my best memories of our deployment because that was sort of real hands-on, getting in amongst the community, speaking to Afghani soldiers and also working with soldiers from Italy or America or Bulgaria. And I don't recall any other countries or soldiers that we mixed with.
2: Can you share any key moments from this time?
0: The moment when we learnt that Cameron Baird had been shot. So we didn't know who had been shot, but we learnt one of the guys from Camp Russell was out and had been shot. And that was the first experience I've ever had of, I never knew Cameron or anyone from his unit, but that was the first experience I had of being on deployment and hearing someone getting hurt. We didn't know too much about what was going on. And we went back to our rooms and I learnt that when something like that happens, all comms are shut off to the outside until I guess family's notified or the situation is rectified. It was really dark and really somber somber feeling, and i I want to make it very clear I never met Cameron or any of his mates, but you think that's that was someone that went left the base that morning when they had to do their job and and never came back the same and that's a moment where I think I maybe grew up a little bit or I maybe realized the real weight of the situation and where we were. near the end of my deployment, where we worked in Kandahar in Camp Hero, we were at the hospital, so where Afghanis would get flown in if they were injured or even locals and seeing people get flown in with tourniquets around their leg after they get off the chopper because they'd lost it in a I suspect a bomb blast, or I don't know but seeing the trauma and seeing these people's faces if it was a fresh injury or they were getting transported that was the I guess the faces of war or the the real the real experience of of war and that was near the end of my deployment so I had the the two different experiences there were moments where I realized like I grew up a bit quicker than I would have otherwise.
2: Did you have any kinetic encounters that you can share? Encounters where you came under fire?
0: Yeah, so we we never received small arms fire. We never were in a situation or an area where that would have happened, you know, unfortunately for us because we wanted to do our job. But there was a couple of times we indirect fire. So when the Taliban would, or we imagine the Taliban would set off a timed rocket from a long distance and just aim at, our base, and just hope that it hit somewhere or something. That happened a few times when we were in Kandahar. It actually happened when we were playing volleyball one night. We could hear the siren, everyone had to hit the deck, and then we heard the explosion. And then it's like everyone just kept playing volleyball again. It was, it was quite weird. That was a funny experience. We never received small arms fire, which was, I think, looking back now, obviously very fortunate, but at the time, that's
2: what we wanted. Were there any other significant moments during your deployment?
0: There was one funny one that at the time was... Probably blew out to be a lot more than it was. We learned that in Kandahar, the way that a complex attack would be carried out. So someone would be driving through Kandahar on a motorbike and they'd have someone on the back with an AK or or a rifle of some sort. The guy on the front would have the bomb attached to the chest or the car or his his vehicle, detonate that, and then the guy on the back would have already jumped off and start shooting with whatever small arms he had. Now, we were told also that in Kandahar, it was illegal. I'm not sure if it was illegal throughout the country for two men to be on a... A scooter and as i was saying before i was out the back doing traffic control with a, a mag 58 and pointing to people to stop there and don't come closer and there was a general understanding with the locals they wouldn't come too close to our car being at the back i was watching a bike weave through traffic and obviously you've got the, the weapon loaded in the shoulder i was pointing it at the this guy with someone on the back coming up to us and weaving through the traffic came closer and closer and i'm not going to just shoot somebody for the sake of it because i suspected you know i was I had all these situations running through my head. One thing I was thinking was, is this one of the complex attacks that's about to be carried out? And I remember the guy came even closer to the Bushmaster and stopped and put one leg down on the floor and put his other arm on the wall of the Bushmaster. And as I was looking down and I thought, is this potentially the last thing I'm going to witness? Or what what is this? And maybe that sounds Hollywood to guys that have actually seen hard combat. I hadn't. So I didn't know what to expect. And I was just expecting the worst or expect the unexpected. that's a moment I'll, I'll always remember, and I'm just glad that I machine gun Dave and opened up on the guy. We got sent back on the seventh of December. We had the choice to stay by the, I think, the eight-month mark. I'd had enough, and I was ready to come home.
2: So, what was it like readjusting when you got home?
0: At the time, I thought it was okay. Uh, now looking back, I look at sort of behaviours, and I probably didn't look after myself. The day we got back, I went to a, a music festival. It was a Vans Warped Tour where there's heavy metal and a lot of loud music and we'd been in an environment where for the past eight months everyone was wearing uniforms not really walking in random patterns to then go from that environment to a music festival the day after we we landed where there's loud noises lights people wearing different clothes jumping around being idiots I remember it was I was sitting with my mate up against one of the the stands with the speakers on it and cameras at the top I felt uneasy I couldn't put my finger on it and now looking back, it's like, what do you think was going to, we went from that environment to loud music, a lot of people moving around in all different directions. And that was the, probably the only real adjustment that I struggled with, just dealing with civilian movement, civilian life that didn't last too long.
2: Was it with any other mates that were on deployment that you went to the festival with?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We didn't talk about it at the time and we didn't talk about it for a few years after it's been 10 years and we've had a lot of conversation with the guys we deployed with and it was actually probably only a year ago I was talking to this guy and I said, oh, I remember I felt really off that day and things just went right. And he said, yeah, fucking you no, know, so did I, you know. Yeah, maybe I was allowed to feel the way I did because maybe it was justified. Now, the whole time I was probably telling myself to get over it because you're not special forces. You didn't see hard combat. You didn't do anything extreme. But I guess there was that silt, that little bit of adjustment. You
2: would have had some leave once you came back from deployment. Did you get up to anything during that?
0: Yeah, got back from Afghanistan, went to Bali for, for 10 days and spent six days in bed shooting through the eye of a needle, as everyone does in Bali, and vomiting. Yeah, probably lost the gains from the gym that I'd made the past eight months over in Afghan. That was, you know, there was nothing to stand out. You know, I came back, enjoyed some time with my girlfriend in Bali, came back home, sorted out a place to live for that year in Adelaide, and, and went back to work in January, February sometime. I started to look for what was next in the army career.
2: What started shaping up when you returned to work?
0: There was a lot of guys that were discharging. There was a lot of openings in support companies and we were actually given the choice to select what support courses we wanted and I actually got to choose uh, mortars. So I put my hand up for mortars and I think it was a week later where my my injury happened and the rest was history. When I broke my neck, Tom, I, I broke it on a Friday night, on a Saturday night, sorry. You know, i had been at work on the Friday, broke it Saturday and I never went back to base after that. You know, I went to hospital and sent to Melbourne it was nine years of worrying about that that closure I never got. You know, I never said goodbye to the places or the, the people or even the items of mine, the cage. I was always in two minds how I'd be received if I was to ever get the opportunity to go back on base. And it was about a month ago, actually, I was flown to Adelaide to talk to the men and women at 7RAR. That was a moment of absolute closure for me. You know, I was so unsure about how I'd be received, but absolute credit to the commanding officer, the RSM, who actually got me over there, Al Ashman, Warren Officer got me over there and made sure that I was treated, I guess, right, you know, and I was given a tour of the, the compound, my old cage room, the lunch room, the boozer. I was given a Bravo company shirt. That was my, my company. And that was a, a really special moment for me. And I truly feel as if I got the closure of discharging from the army that I would, I would have got otherwise, had I not have broken my neck. And that was a moment in, in my time that was really special and really significant. I was laughing with the guy who took me around base saying, this base has never seen someone smile from the time they get on base to the time they get off base if they've been there all day because that was me. It was a truly special moment and I'm so appreciative to the men and women at 7RAR that made it happen.
2: So on the 31st of August 2014, your life has changed forever. Walk us through what happened.
0: On the 31st of August in 2014, I fell three levels over a staircase onto my back and I shattered my C5 vertebrae. That caused spinal cord damage, which made me a quadriplegic. So I'm a a C5 quadriplegic, meaning I've got no movement from the shoulders down. I can't move my tricep. I can't move my fingers. No stomach, nothing. No, I'm incontinent, so I can't use bowel or bladder. I've got no sexual function. And that was all through a, a fall, landing on my back and shattering the vertebrae in my neck and pushing onto my spinal cord. Immediately after I fell, I because I sustained a pretty heavy concussion, I came to and I was on my back and completely paralysed. And I went to move and my legs didn't respond. And I went to move my arms and they didn't respond. And I went to yell, but I couldn't even do that because paralysis means your diaphragm is paralysed and you can't actually yell because you use your diaphragm to contract and, and project your voice. So I went to yell, could only whisper, and there was loud noises. There was people all around me and they weren't actually helping me they were just filming me taking photos of me because they thought it was funny there was a guy laying lifeless on the floor or what seemed to be lifeless that's something I still have nightmares about today it was only three weeks ago I had a nightmare about being stuck on the floor trying to ask for help one of the guys I served with my housemate found me on the ground and called an ambulance the ambulance took me to Adelaide hospital and that's where I had my surgery and that's where my I hate the word journey but that's where it began
2: so walk us through the beginning of this journey where you had everything just taken from you and changed.
0: Yeah, mate. So 22, 23 years old and basically had everything that I knew taken away from me. You know, my independence, my ability to move freely, my identity, my, my life as I knew it basically had been taken from me uh, in most sense of the word, but not every sense of the word, but you know, I woke up in, a, in the hospital bed with not a scratch on me. There was a blanket on me. I was laying naked because my temperature kept spiking and dropping after the, the spinal cord injury. It, it sends your nervous system into shock. And I looked down at my arms and went to move them. And again, no response and went to move my legs and they just sat there. And there was mum, dad, my uncle and girlfriend at my bedside and didn't make sense. Why did... My family flying to state to see me in hospital when I just had a little tumble. You know, why can't I move my legs? Why have I got this tube coming out of my old fella? Uh, why am I naked? All these questions, you know, because in my mind, it was it was my right to wake up every morning like you do, mate, and get dressed, have a shower, feed myself breakfast, drive to work, and wear cams. It was my right. I was telling myself, you know, not my privilege. Over the next few days, it was like, you know, when am I going to go back to doing this? Because I want to stop playing footy when I want to. I'm going to stop. I'm going to get out of the army when I want to. Because I'm 22, you know, I've just been Afghan. I'm invincible. Pretty wrong. And then there was a moment where the CO and the RSM came in to see me, and that was a moment where I thought, fuck, something bad's happened here for them to come and see me. I was then taken to Austin Hospital here in Melbourne, and that's where my hell Began because that's where I really started to realize what my future looked like. Yeah, waking up to a a body that's not responding, but the mind is willing. The psychology behind someone's thinking in in a 24 hour period, you can have 10,000 thoughts. Now, imagine being trapped in a body where only a few days ago you were walking, you were living, and now you're stuck there, paralyzed. Those 10,000 thoughts, the majority of them ain't good. They're not telling you how good your life's going to be, what you're going to do tomorrow. They're telling you how shit your life's going to be, what you're never going to do again, who's going to leave you, girlfriends, mates, what you're never going to achieve with your life, purely because you can't move your body. Over the next few days, I'm learning about what a catheter is, because I I was in the shower when the nurse had just put a suppository in my ass because I'm incontinent. She hoisted me out of bed to my shower chair, pushed me over the toilet, and sat me there for the next hour. that's where I started to think again, you know, staring at this hospital wall, what's this tube coming out of my old fella? The nurse is like, that, that's a catheter. We'll use that forever. And that moment there, the realisation that not only would I physically not be the same because I couldn't move, but physically not look the same because I had something coming out of me, that was really hard. And then getting my disability permit, that was another moment, like, in a cue the identity crisis. After... The suppository and empty my bowel. She'd wipe my ass and then wash me. And all these experiences were so foreign to me. If someone was wiping my ass at that stage, it's because I'd just been drinking too much and my mates were doing it for me, not because I'd just broken my neck. Same thing if someone was drying me or dressing me, not because I couldn't do it, and but I wanted to. In the next 12 months, learning how to basically live with a spinal cord injury, learning about pressure sores on the skin. If you sit down for too long, you can get a pressure sore or, something called dysreflexia so basically because i can't feel my legs if there's a, a hot needle imagine a hot needle to my leg and i can't register because i can't feel it internally my body can feel it so it's going to increase my blood pressure i'm going to really sharp headache and if i don't remove that sharp needle or whatever's causing me discomfort whether it be a blocked catheter tube because i'm not hydrated bowels are full i'm sitting on something sharp or there's something really uncomfortable that i can't register if i don't amend that I can have a stroke and die. Now, that sounds worst case scenario, but it's happened to someone I know who's a quad. He lives. He lived only a few days down the road to me, happened a year and a half ago because his catheter was blocked overnight when he fell asleep and he never woke up. So these are all things that I just took for granted, you know, like normally having to piss just freely, but now I've got to use a catheter. All these little things I can't regulate, I can't sweat, meaning I can't cool down in the summer or whenever I exercise or when it's really cold, the blood stays in my extremities because it doesn't pull to my core. Therefore, I've had hypothermia eight times because I haven't registered that I'm getting cold in time. Now, these are all challenges and things you never think to consider. Like I was saying, you learn to live again. You learn how to live with a spinal cord injury.
2: During this time, did you have some access to movement?
0: No. So really, it's a, a, gradually over time, you start to get movement back in your limbs, whether it be a, a little bit of elbow movement, like you can see if there's a video here, I'm, I'm moving my arms up and down as if I'm waving, but it's not fine motor skills. I can't move my fingers, therefore I can't pick things up. I can't write. I don't have a tricep, so I can't, say, grab the shampoo off the shelf. I can't push or push against resistance if it's upwards or outwards if there's something stopping me. But that movement slowly comes back over time, and that started to come back bit by bit. But like I said, no tricep, no dexterity, no chest, no core, So when, when I'm sitting up, I'm using my head to balance. And that's something I quickly came to learn that how fucking heavy the head is and trying to hold that up and use that to balance my body.
2: Was there anything that helped you get through this journey?
0: It was my mates who would come and sit with me, who would treat me exactly the same as they were months before, not treat me as Joel the quadriplegic. There's a funny photo. It was my first Anzac day after I broke my neck and, I was in pieces mentally. There wasn't a day where I didn't think about suicide. And I remember this day where I was, I was Anzac Day with my mates and there's a photo of them trying to push me out of my chair. You know, that's just them treating me like they, they would have treated anyone. Now, there's a guy that can't even sit upright, but they were trying to push me out of the chair because we'd all been having a drink and mucking around. And that sort of stuff, being treated normally, hanging out with friends was a good distraction from what was actually going on. You know, there's so much dignity that's that's stolen from you when you break your neck. Yeah, not being able to feed yourself, not being able to scratch your ass, not that I could feel it if it was itchy. No. Um, doing catheters or and to have, as we can all attest to, army mates who will do anything for you or Navy or Air Force that will do anything for you, knowing that when I go out I was completely safe or they would help me and they would help me because they wanted to, that was really good. That was really important for me. There was... Countless conversations I had with my dad or, or my mum, and dad would always say, "It's all right, son. You know, we'll get through this." And I was pessimistic, you know, because to me, recovery was getting back to what I used to be. But now, looking on nearly ten years, it's getting back to living. It's not getting back to the way things once were. And when he would say, "We'll get through this," this is what he means. Like my life, what I'm living now, that's what he was referring to. Being treated by my girlfriend as job. We had that hard conversation where we discussed maybe ending it because it was going to be really difficult and tricky, but she never even entertained the thought.
2: Obviously, um, with your time in the Army, you couldn't maintain and keep that job. What was it that gave you the idea or what put you on that path of what's next to where you are now as an educator?
0: It was a natural progression through experiences. I had a, a really good relationship with a national Army football coach. I played Army footy for two years and ADF footy for two years. And I formed some really good relationships there. And part of that relationship, that the coach, James De Bono, or Bones, he, he asked me to just come and speak to one of the teams about my story, just, just share my story. And I'd never done it. Speaking to the men and women National Army team about my story, it was there where I realised, one, there's a lot of stuff I haven't unpacked for my own benefit. Two, that I can share a story and probably do it well. And three, I needed work on myself because there's a lot of things in there that I didn't realise when I was speaking about. I broke down crying because it was really confronting. That thing of laying on the floor where people were taking photos and not helping me, I couldn't even verbalise that. At the time, it was obviously a massive problem for me and and still is now, but I identified a few things that had to be spoken about with my psychologist. It was through that progression of experiences of sharing my story with, with that football team and then another community group and then a school and and then engaging some corporate speakers as, as mentors that I realised I've got something here, I can actually do it. I was also offered opportunity working for an ex-service organisation helping people leave military, find employment. So that provided me really good stability financially and also personally and professionally, I guess, just to learn what the corporate world's like because it's a different beast to the, the green machine.
2: Had you ever felt comfortable speaking to people, big crowds or anything like that before?
0: Never, no. I hated it, but that's the thing, Tom. I'm not talking about philosophy or history. I'm talking about myself. I'm subject matter expert on myself. I know my story. I know my experiences. I've done it hundreds of times now, and I can probably illustrate them a lot better than what I did when I first started.
2: One of the key things that you talk about is the power of perspective. What's so special about perspective?
0: There's actually psychology on it, and I'll, I'll make a note here. Just Google positive reframing. And the way we perceive things can actually have a direct link to our response internally and then externally. So if we perceive something as a threat, heart rate goes up, adrenaline goes up, the fight or flight. If we see something is absolutely catastrophic, stress, and that can then have flow and effects. Now, I'm not a medical professional yet. I'm still learning it. But that can then lead to stress, anxiety increased fat around the liver, around the organs, and that has a direct result response on our physical health. So perspective, and I'm getting back to it now, perspective is so powerful because how you perceive something, whether it be a threat or catastrophic, can really determine how you respond in the next hour, two hours, day, two days. And that's regardless of people with disability, people without, people in the military, people in the civilian world. We're all humans. We all have emotions and we all respond differently but if you can control how you actually respond to a scenario or perhaps a broken neck what you can achieve from that is infinite And you know, I say your perspective determines your narrative so how you behave how you live and that then determines your outcome so how you finish or how you come out of that scenario as an individual both man or woman or however you identify so the power of perspective is something that I live by as somebody who can't physically move my mind is is my body in that sense. So using perspective to control every
2: element, every element in my day. You just said before that not yet. Are you currently studying?
0: Yeah, so I'm studying very slowly, studying psychology, psychological science to be exact. Work and family has gotten the way, so I've deferred at the moment, but I'm still learning and engaging with neuroscientists or psychologists and trying to learn now, unofficially. There's no RTOs in those meetings or I don't get any accreditation, but I'm still learning. That's a definite, it's definitely a passion of mine, psychology.
2: How has this journey gone with sharing your experience with everyone from starting off with the footy club effectively to now getting on large stages in front of people?
0: The power of vulnerability, Tom, is massive because if you can share something that is a vulnerability of yours, you open up conversation to someone, you can change the way they think about the next time they hit adversity or the next time, or even if they're going through it at the time. and I never want my story to be something that has an impact on someone that says, well, fuck, you know, my sword back's nothing compared to Joel. What am I whinging about? Because that sort of leads down a path of them comparing, and if you start comparing, you'll never be satisfied or happy, regardless of what you're comparing yourself to. When I share my story, I hope that the impact it has on people is, one, it opens their eyes up to how they can utilise perspective, but then, two, say that does happen where they say, hey, you know, this sore needs nothing compared to Joel. If that helps them in that time, in that present moment, hey, that's that's a good thing. But I don't want it to be an ongoing trend where they compare everything that happens in their life to my story or my injury. Because, Tom, your, your broken down car, your broken leg is as bad to you as my broken neck was to me on the day I broke mine. Because you don't know any worse. And I didn't know any worse than a broken neck. And fuck me, I hope I never know any worse than a broken neck on the personal scale.
2: Could you have ever imagined you being where you are now? from when you first came to to, to yeah now. no way
0: no and funny a couple of things come from your question there one being damien tomlinson 14 years ago recognized his anniversary of his injury and he also mentioned that people will say oh would you change it if you had the time again his response i would never entertain the thought i can align and sort of a, agree with him there because when i first broke my neck a lot of quads that would come in and, and try and mentor me would say My life got better after I broke my neck. And I would sit with that and think, how shit was your life for it to be better after you're now you're a quadriplegic? Now I sit back and time is a wonderful thing and I'm actually of the same thought that Damien is because the best elements of my life, the most beautiful elements of my life are because of my spinal cord injury. None of the experiences, these conversations, what we're doing now. This wouldn't have happened if I didn't break my neck. The people I've met, the places I've been, who knows, you know, and what could have been, I'm not going to worry about that. My life is incredible because of my spinal cord injury. So I never thought that I'd be one happy in the place I'm in and, and successful, not because of the material things in my life, but successful because of the way I live my life. It's not perfect. I make mistakes, I fail, but I also succeed and I'm happy with where I'm at. I could never never have said that. Nine years ago, laying in bed, staring at the roof, telling myself what I was not going to do, everything I was never going to achieve.
2: Joel, if people want to follow you or book you as a speaker, what's the best way for them to get in touch or find out more?
0: Well, thank you very much if they do in the first place. (laughs) I've got an Instagram page. I've got a website. It's Joel Sardi. Very original, easy to find. I'm on Instagram, and there's a website, joelsardi.com.
2: I was wondering as well if um, anyone that has received your stories or your journey the information on it if it has helped them and change your perspective of how you've been delivering your story
0: sharing vulnerability is a really powerful thing and i never realized the power of it until i started doing it and the benefit that i have of not having profile or not being a celebrity or an athlete or well known is i can relate to everybody who i speak to in the audience because they've never heard of me i put myself in their shoes to see you know i was just like you one day i was had something shit happen to me something really shit but i can i'm still happy you know i'm still loving life and i've been able to give that message to a lot of men and women that i present to even school kids hearing them after a presentation come and speak to me one on one or send me a message about some issues they're having or troubles they're having at home or at school and i'm able to safely approach a teacher or safely approach somebody so that they can get help that is priceless to know that i can help someone just by sharing my story in that regard by sharing vulnerability that's priceless for me, and that's that's why I'll keep on doing it.
2: With your time in the army and with your mates that you're going to catch up with on Anzac Day, how do you reflect on that time?
0: I reflect on it as a time of forming relationships and the experiences that shaped my life, gave me the tools to to manage some adverse experiences such as spinal cord injury. It also gave me a unique perspective on on life post military. I look back on it as one of the most pivotal experiences in the formative years of a young man's life. Again, it's an experience that I would do again. I wouldn't change. Now, there were some shit times and some shit people that I worked with that gave me bad experiences. But then on the other side of the coin, there are incredible people that have an in- impact on my life still to this day. I wouldn't change it. I look forward to seeing all my mates on Anzac Day.
2: Joel, thank you for your service and the incredible work you're doing now, sharing your story and helping people get through things in their lives.
0: Thanks, Tom. I appreciate the time, mate. And I look forward to hearing many more good guests on your show.
2: I'm Thomas Kay, and you've been listening to Life on the Line.
1: Follow this podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at LOTLpod, and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www life on the line, podcast.com life on the line is brought to you by thistle productions artwork by big cat design music by dan van workhoven thank you for listening and lest we forget